Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. Joining us today is Andrew E. Budson, MD. He is on a crusade to empower individuals, families, and doctors with the knowledge they need surrounding memory loss and dementia. His award-winning book being translated into Chinese and Korean, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It, explains how individuals can distinguish changes in memory due to Alzheimer's versus normal aging, what medications, diets, and exercise exercise regimes can help, and the best habit strategies and memory aids to use in seven simple steps. His latest book, Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, a guide for families, helps families manage issues with memory, language, vision, behavior, driving, incontinence, sleep, and more. Educating at Haverford College and Harvard Medical School, he is Chief of Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System, Director of Education at the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Center, Professor of Neurology at Boston University School of Medicine and lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School. I'm just going to say, wow. Hello, Dr. E. Excuse me, Andrew E. Budson. Dr. Budson, welcome to Talk Healthy Today. Well, well, thanks so much for having me. When did you first realize that you wanted to work in neurology? So that's a good question. And it's sort of a funny story. So uh, my father is a psychiatrist. And um, when he was studying for his specialty boards, it turns out the psychiatry and neurology boards are joint at psychiatry and neurology. And he knew all the psychiatry stuff, but he didn't know the neurology stuff. So he needed to study the neurology. And he asked me, I was like, you know, 10 years old at the time, if I would like read him like the questions and quiz him, see if he got the answers right. And I started getting excited about neurology at 10 years old. So it's really been a lifelong passion of mine to better understand, you know, how do problems with the brain create, you know, problems in language and memory and behavior and emotions and things like that. When he first asked you where you were like, wait, neurology, what, what is that? And, and did he tell you what it was? Or did he just say, hello, son, read these questions? Or did he give you kind of a background? Well, I, I just knew there was a big picture of the brain on the cover. And I just thought that was like really cool. So so that, that, that was really what attracted me to it. A lot of what we talk about in, you know, in our new book, The Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, is that if we can just understand a little bit more about, you know, how our loved ones with these uh, disorders, Alzheimer's and dementia, if we can understand a little bit more about how their brain works, how their thinking works, we will then understand almost intuitively what are the right communication techniques to use when somebody is having, for example, a behavioral problem or they don't want to take their medications or they don't want to have a bath or, you know, they've had a urinary accident or, or something like that. And uh, I do think that, you know, you've really hit on, on one of the sort of key fundamental approaches, which is just, you know, put yourself in the individual's shoes, think about things from their perspective, and then a lot of what we say will naturally flow from that uh, type of approach. You know, a lot of people say things like, I'm having a senior moment, or they're, you know, you, I mean, how many times have you walked into a room and forgotten what you've, you're looking for? Well, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> I think people, that just happens to people, right? So talk to us about the difference between those sort of senior moments, and then dementia and Alzheimer's. And also, I know there's a differentiation between dementia and Alzheimer's as well. But talk to us about those, because I hear that so often. Oh, I'm having a senior moment. 
And I think it's kind of insulting, but I don't, I mean, that's, that's the vernacular. So. Right, right. No, I, I understand both, both points. Yeah. So the, <laughs> um, you know, the first thing I, I want to uh, reassure all of uh, your listeners out there that if you walk into a room and you can't remember why you're there, uh, you are normal. That happens to everyone. So don't worry about that. It's like, oh, thank God. So, uh, but the, the types of uh, problems that can be concerning would be if, you know, somebody is repeatedly asking the same questions again and again and again, if they are um, telling the same stories to the same people over and over and over again. And I don't mean, you know, just like twice or something like that, but again and again and again. So that can be red flags. Uh, Another thing that can happen that is not normal is that people begin to get lost even on uh, familiar routes. And what you see is that because of this difficulty getting lost, the circle of where people go gets smaller and smaller and uh, smaller. And people begin to be more isolated and have a more limited uh, existence. So all of those uh, would be warning signs that one should go and you know see their doctor or or take their loved one to see their doctor, and then the the last thing I'll just say on this point is that everyone's different, and some people are always you know very organized and always know exactly where everything is, and for someone like that, if they begin to lose things, misplacing things, that can be a warning sign for them. Now, other people are sort of disorganized. They never know where their keys and glasses and wallet and pocketbook and cell phone are. So someone like that, misplacing those things would not be a warning sign. So we often try and look and see, like, is there a change in the way uh, that they're able to function? So can you have dementia, but that that's different than Alzheimer's, right? Doesn't necessarily mean if you can expand on that. I'm glad we're, we're covering this topic because it is the number one question that I get asked uh, at almost any presentation is what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? So dementia is simply a general term that means that thinking and memory have deteriorated to the point that it interferes with day-to-day function. Okay. And the way I sort of think about it, I think about it sort of like another general term, which is like a headache, right? People can have a headache from a lot of different things. You can have, you know, a headache from like muscle tension or migraine, neither of which are very serious, but you can also have a headache from a stroke or a brain tumor, which are serious. And with dementia, it's actually the same way. People can actually have dementia from something as simple and treatable as a vitamin deficiency or a thyroid disorder. Oh, wow. But uh, people can also have dementia from a variety of different brain diseases, including Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, which is dementia due to strokes, frontotemporal dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and there's a lot of other types as well. So dementia is the general term, and Alzheimer's is one type or one kind or one cause of dementia. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, in your book, Six Steps to Managing Disease and Dementia, a Guide for Families, first of all, congratulations, it's number one new release in medical home care. That is huge. You have a great, you have so many great issues. You look at how do you approach problems in dementia? How do you cope with emotional behavioral problems? What are the best way to manage troubles in sleep and incontinence, medications? I want to jump into the emotional and behavioral problems because what I've heard, and I don't know a lot, but that people can get very angry or belligerent or uncooperative, or it's it's like their personality isn't quite them. Or would you say for some people, maybe if they already have that tendency to be a little bit volatile, it gets worse? What, what do you see, Dr. Budson? It's a, it's a very good question. So most of the time, it is a reaction to um, the person with dementia not understanding what is going on around them. So, you know, a, a typical example, you know, might be, you know, let's say that it turns out that, you know, every time the uh, home health aide comes to try and help, you know, dad 
to have a bath, you know, there's all sorts of resistance and he's fighting and he's yelling and, you know, and so you think, geez, well, what should we do? And what the answer might be is as simple as making sure that dad understands like who this person is and what they're doing. You see, from the home health aides perspective, you know, he's been going there to help give this gentleman a bath like, you know, every week for the past like four months or something like that. But from dad's perspective, because he has severe memory problems, he doesn't remember this guy ever coming before. So as far as he's concerned, this is a strange person he has never met before and he doesn't understand why is this strange person telling him to take his clothes off? Why does he want to give him a bath? From dad's perspective, he's like 40 years old. He knows how to take a bath. He just thinks this is really odd and confusing. So a lot of it uh, has to do with, with simply, again, you know, putting yourself into the person's shoes and sort of understanding. And this actually leads to the first way that we recommend approaching when there are problems with this type of angry outburst. Uh, uh, and I want to be clear that we did not invent this, but we were passing that this is one of the tips we're, we're passing on. Um, these are the four R's. And the first one is to reassure the person that everything's okay. Second one is to reconsider, consider things from the individual's perspective. The third one is to redirect. So we direct them away from whatever is upsetting them and towards something that is going to calm them. And the fourth R is actually the one for caregivers. It's relax. <gasps> Important for the caregiver to take a deep breath and not show frustration or their own anger or fear or, you know, whatever it is, because uh, we can all too easily as caregivers reflect our emotions of being frustrated, you know, back onto uh, the individual. So that's really what happens most of the time is that there's a communication uh, problem. Now, sometimes it this uh, communication difficulties are exacerbated because, uh, again, of the dementia, the parts of the brain that normally would be able to deal with frustration or deal with confusion are no longer uh, working. And so that can cause, you know, a little frustration to provoke some anger. And then there are some people that even the parts of the brain that regulate anger are not functioning uh, properly. And those uh, when those things occur, people can have a change in their personality. But more commonly than a change, it usually is that people have that trouble with frustration. I could imagine as a caregiver, it's so incredibly frustrating because you know they're, you know they have this issue. But then it's like the hundredth day that the same person is here giving you a bath. Like even, you know, you're like, just come on. And then you feel guilty, I'm imagining, because you know they have an issue but yet you have these feelings. So what do you say to caregivers? Because I, I have a friend who took care of his parents for 10 years. My brother took care of my mom the last year of her life. And they didn't have Alzheimer's or dementia, but they had other health issues. And it, it, it was just a very taxing experience. And I don't think people understand the weight that caregivers uh, take yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, what you say is is so true and so important. Well, you know how we have six steps. So one of the steps, uh, step four, it's just to help caregivers with this uh, issue. And it's uh, it's actually my, my colleague, uh, Maureen O'Connor, who, who wrote uh, this section of the book. And she has this great line, which is, you can't pour from an empty cup. And um, so it is super important for all caregivers to do things to refill their own uh, cup. And uh, because anyone, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, like how, you know, much you know about this subject, how much you understand everything that we're talking about. Just like you said, when it's like the hundredth time in two hours that they're asking you the same <laughs> questions, it's like, ah, 
what do you do? You know, so one whole uh, uh, chapter in this section is about that uh, all caregivers need to take care of themselves. They need to take the time to eat right, to exercise, to socialize with their friends, to do other activities outside of caregiving so they can refill their own cup, recharge their own batteries, and be ready to go in again. The other thing is the next chapter is about how to build your care team because no one person can do this alone, right? It, it's just it's just not possible. And so, you know, we, we talk about all the different ways to help, you know, friends and families and uh, uh, you know, relatives, uh, neighbors, uh, sometimes, you know, people that will, uh, will work for you, or maybe it's a, uh, an after school, you know, a high school student can do volunteer work. I mean, you need to get a team uh, together to help. So those are my, my recommendations. You got to take care of yourself and you got to work on getting a team together. I also think the emotional side in terms of grief. I mean, this person, let's say it's your mother or your father or, you know, somebody close and you're caretaking for them. There's, I would imagine there's a grieving process, especially when they're deep in the throes of Alzheimer's and they're really, you're losing them, but they're there, but they're not. I mean, that just must be so incredibly. Oh, it it is very heartbreaking. And some uh, people I've heard use the term uh, the long goodbye. Um, I've also heard that it's like people die twice. They die once when the person is sort of no longer the person they were before. And then they die again, you know, when their body actually uh, gives out. It's it is very hard. And I would say you, you've hit on uh, one of the other things that we work very hard on the book uh, to do, which is, you know, all of us, we have a certain way that we deal with, you know, different, you know, friends and, and family members. And um, when the person begins to develop dementia and they can't, you know, intellectually understands the same things that we're saying. They're not going to respond in the same way that we're saying it, just like, you know, the example I gave before with, you know, dad and the bathing and things like that. It's so hard for uh, families to sort of come to terms emotionally and really understand, like, I can't just reason with my parent, my sibling, my spouse, in the same way that I've always done before. I really have to treat them differently. And what's so hard about that is in order to treat them differently, you have to come to terms with the fact that in some important way, the person you knew before is gone. And that's where the grief comes in. And so one of the reasons that as a technique, we put characters into the book that if you read the book cover to cover and you don't have to, you can jump around to different sections. But if you read the book cover to cover, you would see how the stories evolved. And we hope that as these characters come to term with their grief in just this way we're talking about, it will help you as the the reader uh, come to terms with these issues in your own life. Yeah, I think that's so incredibly helpful. You know, I'm a big uh, supporter of support groups as well. And I'm wondering how you feel. I think that can make a difference. You feel less alone and you hear other. It's like reading your book, right? And reading the stories and then going to a group and hearing other people who have a similar experience and then finding somebody to bond with and talk with who gets it. Absolutely. I I agree with you so much. Uh, I think support groups are so uh, important. We specifically highlight how important uh, support groups are. And, you know, we talk about, you know, different types of support groups, you know, some you're primarily going to learn information. Uh, others, you're there primarily to sort of share stories. Uh, many groups do, do a bit of uh, both. I am uh, pleased to say that um, I've had the opportunity to sort of you know, participate as sort of like like an expert at a variety of different uh, support groups. And, you know, they invite me because they want to learn from me, but I learn so much from them, you know, when I hear these stories. And although, 
you know, I've treated thousands of, of patients. Um, I, I learn from every single one uh, because, you know, everyone uh, has unique problems and everyone develops unique uh, ways of managing those problems. You know, speaking of problems, some of the things you address in the book have to do with sleep troubles and incontinence. You can touch on those for us. Absolutely. You know, the the most common thing that I hear about related to sleep, you know, is the, the family member comes in and says, Doc, you got to do something. My father's up at four in the morning every night waking everybody up. You know, you got to give him a sleeping pill. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, if I give me a sleeping pill when he goes to bed, is it really going to help at four in the morning? And, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll usually start by saying, well, you know, take me through, take me through his day. Like, you know, what time does he go to bed? And, you know, what time does he get up and all that? I was like, oh, you know, well, he's really tired, you know, by the end of the day. So we usually put him to bed at eight o'clock. I was like, wait a minute. You put him to bed at eight o'clock by 4 a.m. He has slept eight hours. He's fine. He's well rested, getting up, raring, ready to get ready for the day, you know. And that's actually, believe it or not, the most common reason that uh, people with dementia are, you know, quote unquote, agitated in the middle of the night. They're usually not that agitated. They're just awake because they were they already have all the sleep they need. And uh, even for a healthy older adult, many healthy older adults that take sleeping pills today, it's simply because when they were working, they used to go to bed at 10 p.m. and would get up at 6 a.m. to get ready for their work. But now that they're retired, they don't want to have to get up at 6 a.m. They like to sleep till 8 a.m. So now they go to bed at 10 p.m. and expect to sleep till 8 a.m. But that's 10 hours. Most people cannot sleep 10 hours, nor do they need to sleep 10 hours. And uh, so the first way to address sleep problems is simply to sort of count the number of hours and you have to count naps. And if they're falling asleep at the day program, you have to count that in there too and make sure they're only sleeping, you know, for, for those number of hours at, uh, at night. And if they're, you know, in bed for more than eight hours, you know, then you need to sort of pick and choose, well, what hours do you want them to sleep? You know, um, uh, the, the other things that uh, are very common is, you know, people can have caffeine late at night. You know, that can be a problem. Uh, sometimes people are either eating too much fruit or drinking too much liquids right before they go to bed, and that wakes them up a lot. Sometimes people have fluid that can build up in their legs. I usually recommend they lie down on a couch, have their feet up on the edges of the couch so a couple hours before they go to bed so the fluid can drain out rather than it all happening when they're uh, uh, trying to sleep. Um, it's important to not do sort of other activities in bed other than, you know, sleeping and sexual activities. You know, other activities should right. be done uh, elsewhere. And uh, the last thing about sleep is a lot of people actually have uh, sleep disorders. They're actually very common and uh, obstructive sleep apnea, where uh, the tissues in the, the throat can close off and it causes not just snoring, but very loud snoring and sometimes pauses in breathing. So uh, those are important because they can cause strokes and heart attacks and things like that if there's not enough oxygen uh, getting into the blood. Um, and then there are some sleep disorders that are more common uh, with aging, um, such as the legs moving around. And then there are some sleep disorders that are more common with dementia and a particular type of dementia called dementia with Lewy bodies, where people actually act out their dreams while they are sleeping. And this is something that normally we are all actually uh, motionless. We're actually paralyzed, except for our head, but our body is paralyzed when we're uh, in dream sleep. But in uh, Lewy body disease, many patients are not paralyzed and they can be running in their sleep or wrestling in their sleep. And sometimes they fall out of bed. Sometimes they injure their, their bed partner. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that we can help sleep. And let me just uh, touch about incontinence, which you also uh, asked about. Uh, incontinence happens uh, 
in almost every uh, person with dementia at some point in the disease. Now, there's a few types where it's actually the presenting symptom. And uh, one type is when there's too much fluid in the head. We all normally have a certain amount of spinal fluid in the head. Well, sometimes if there's a blockage, that spinal fluid can build up and it can push on some of the centers in the brain, including those that allow one to control the bladder. And uh, so if one of the first symptoms is incontinence, then, you know, you should go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, I'm worried that I may have some problem with too much fluid in the head. We call it normal pressure hydrocephalus or NPH. And that's uh, one thing that it's good for people to be aware of because you can treat it uh, and stop that dementia from getting worse if you figure out what's going on early. The most common problem, however, is just that people don't have as much control over their bladder because the brain, unfortunately, is uh, deteriorating. Brain cells are dying due to the dementia. And um, usually what happens is, you know, the bladder fills and they need to go and they need to run really quickly, you know, to get to the bathroom and they may not make it on time or they could actually hurt themselves by, by rushing to go to the bathroom. And there's actually a very simple way to deal with this problem. And it's sort of common sense, but you would be surprised uh, how few people do this on their own, which is you just have a toileting schedule. So if the person tends to have an accident every three hours, well, they need to go to the bathroom every two hours, you know. And the important thing is whether they feel like it or not, Okay, those of you who have children in the house, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you're going to take a trip in the car. You know, you don't ask your child, uh, at least if they were like my kids, you don't ask them if they need to go or if they want to go. You say, hey, it's time to go to the bathroom. (laughs) No, you just go every two hours, whether you feel like you need to or not. If they're having accidents every two hours, go every hour and a half. It really is pretty simple. It can be sorted out. And the other uh, tip I would say is if your loved one has trouble with incontinence and you're going to do an outing outside of the house, uh, do your homework. So in addition to having them go to the bathroom uh, before they get into the car, you know, if it's going to be a long trip and in the car, you know, find out ahead of time, use the web, find out where are their bathrooms en route to where you're going. If you're going to go to a museum, find out where are the bathrooms and particularly the companion bathrooms so you can go with them. Find out where those are in the museum. Hit that first. You want to bring a just-in-case bag with you. So if there's an accident, make sure you have a change of everything you would need if things were to get wet, like including socks and things like that, you know, in in addition to uh, a spare pair of absorbent undergarments. Yes. I was going to ask about the absorbent undergarments and if that's something that I guess in certain cases they might be needed. Yeah. It's again, you know, because incontinence happens in most dementias at some point in the disease, you know, most people will end up uh, wearing them. You know, what I like to hear is that the accidents are so rare with these simple measures that I've mentioned that people hardly need, you know, they hardly ever, you know, get used, but it it has a little bit of safety and, and it certainly can, Uh, take something that would be sort of a major issue to a minor issue, allowing one to still, you know, stay at the museum or the playground or wherever they are. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Now, in the book, you talk about medications that can help and then medications that can actually make things worse. Yes, I'm actually very proud that we actually put in by name, both the generic names and the brand names of all these different medicines that can make thinking and memory worse. And, uh, you know, I don't expect that families are going to know that all these medicines can make 
the individual's thinking and memory worse. But there are so many medicines out there that can harm thinking and memory. I, I will honestly say that, although as we also talk about, you know, there are medicines that can help. Um, and we do prescribe those. I do prescribe those. Uh, but I probably do more good for my families by just helping to get rid of medications that can make thinking and memory worse. So, you know, there are uh, benzodiazepines, which are, you know, good medicines if someone has a serious anxiety and they're prescribed by a psychiatrist for the specific reason, fine. You know, there can be, you know, other medicines that if someone's having, you know, a serious like psychosis or delusions, you know, you know, fine. But, but these medicines are, are sometimes just prescribed like water. And I, I, I don't want to criticize my colleagues who do this. It's often because they're so busy and they have so little time to talk about these, um, these non-pharmacologic techniques that, um, you know, they want to prescribe a medicine rather than saying, like, I don't have time, you know, to do anything uh, for you. But, but the, the message, you know, I want to send is that, like, if you read through all the non-pharmacological things you can do for all these problems, they work so much better with so much fewer side effects uh, than uh, so many prescription medicines do that, with the best of intentions, often cause a, a lot of uh, problems. And, you know, the, the sort of simple bottom line is that your loved one did not have these behavioral problems or sleeping problems or other types of problems when their thinking and memory was better. So anything that's going to make the thinking and memory worse, it's just going to make all the problems worse. So that's, that's why we uh, listed all those medicines in there and, and, and kudos for to Oxford university press for having the courage to, to, to let us put those in there. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the things I love about your book. I think it's so important to be able to find a resource that gives you so much information all in one place. I mean, that's why I like doing the show, Talk Healthy Today, because I want people to be able to, you know, listen to the show, pick up the book, or if the person doesn't have a book, get the advice from the show and then be able to put it into action. I think that makes such a difference because this is a very serious issue and it's a hard issue, right? And and we we talked about that earlier. We need that support. You know, I'm I'm super big on you know, things that are natural that you can use and food as medicine and exercise and movement and using your brain in different ways. Is there a point where if the person is at a certain, you know, level of the Alzheimer's, I don't know if that's the right verbiage, but something like it's too late or is there like early signs of dementia? You're like, okay, let's start doing those brain games or eat more blueberries. <laughs> you know, how does that work? Yeah, no, th th that's a, it's a great point. So, you know, all of those different things that you mentioned like, you know, eating right and um, exercising and staying active. You know, as I mentioned, like those are super important for uh, all of your listeners out there, regardless of age. If they want to work at, you know, doing what they can do to prevent or delay uh, the onset of thinking and memory problems and ultimately Alzheimer's and dementia, We've just seen again and again and again, those things are so, so uh, important. You know, one of my favorite studies is a study that, that looked at people who started vigorously exercising and eating right in their 40s. And they found that compared to a control group, that the individuals that did those correct things, eating and exercising, were actually able to delay the onset of dementia by 11 years from age 79 to age 90. So, I mean, these things are so, so important. Now, you, you make a very good point, though. However, it's like, you know, at some point, if dad loves to eat ice cream, should we just let him eat ice cream? You know, and, and the answer is that... Um, People's brains work better if they're eating healthy food, okay? Now, that doesn't mean someone shouldn't have a little bit of ice cream, you know, from time to time. There's really nothing wrong with having a little bit of ice cream. I think the problem in our society is, like, everything has to be, like, supersized, right? So 
you're going to have an ice cream. It's got to be gigantic, you know. I mean, people can have a couple tablespoons of ice cream, you know, after they've, you know, had a good meal and they've taken their medications and stuff like that. It, it's all fine. Um, the, the problem is, you know, too much stuff, I think, gets out of control. But, you know, I really do encourage people to eat healthy throughout their life. Um, I want people to stay active uh, throughout their life. Now, what staying active is, is a little bit different when you're age 20 and when you're 40 and when you're 60 and when you're 80. When you're 80, you know, you have a brisk walk for, you know, 30 minutes, maybe divide it up into three 10-minute brisk walks. That's wonderful. I think that's fantastic. You know, when you're 20, you should be doing a little bit more than that. And uh, but, you know, even, you know, when a person is into the moderate or severe stages of dementia, you know, to be doing exercise will uh, produce endorphins. They'll uh, feel good. They'll be happier. It's like a natural antidepressant. So that is going to help behavior. Obviously, people are going to be less upset if they're feeling happy. Um, it's also important because people will be tired out by the end of the day and they will go to sleep naturally without any sedatives or sleeping pills or anything like that. So I, I am a big fan of staying active, staying engaged, eating right, exercising and participating in social activities all throughout the, the uh, dementia stage. But like I said, you know, you know, we're not planning, right, we're not planning to try to prevent Alzheimer's 20 years in the future. So dad wants to have some ice cream or, you know, macaroni and cheese or whatever is their favorite food, even if it wouldn't technically, you know, uh, fall under a Mediterranean style menu of foods. That's okay, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I was thinking about what we talked about earlier about the bath situation. So let's say your dad has had the same guy come for like 100 days, right? And Bob. Now the per the caregiver, my guess would be you don't want to be like, uh, like, they don't remember, do you say, oh, that's Bob, he's been coming for 100 days? Or do you just say, oh, this is Bob, and he's helping you? Because I don't want to make the person feel bad. Like, what is a better approach, though? Because maybe it's better they know he's been coming. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, I, I totally uh, agree that we don't want to make the person uh, feel bad. It usually doesn't help to remind them. So, you know, you just have to really instruct Bob to have a little script. And so Bob learns to say, hi, Mr. Jones, I'm Bob. And your you know, wife said, that you would like a little bit of help, you know, when you're taking a bath and you're trying to reach, you know, the, the your middle of your back there and get that clean, that you needed a little help with that. So let's go ahead and see if we can get this bath thing, you know, going together or something like that. You know, the, the other thing that sometimes works is what we call the start with small steps. And so if, if uh, Mr. Jones doesn't want to have a bath, you, can, Bob can say, oh, you know, if you don't want to have a bath today, that's that's totally fine. No problem. But, you know, you do have a little bit of dirt on your nose. Do you mind if I just take a washcloth and clean that? And and you got a little bit on your cheek and a little bit on your neck here. And, oh, look, I got your shirt wet. I'm so sorry. Maybe we should just take it off, you know, so it doesn't get wet. You know, that's and smart. sometimes that can can do the trick. Do you think that they portray Alzheimer's well in, in television. And obviously it depends on the show, but I think if you just watch TV, you think, okay, so here's, here's Bob and there's Carol. And then Bob will have a moment. He remembers his wife, Carol, but then like a minute later, he's like, who are you? And where did you come from? And, and then it kind of switches back and forth or they'll be out walking. They don't know where they are, which sounds like happens. Cause you talked about that. I think one show I, well, I love this is us. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a fantastic show. I feel like from what I've read, they're doing a, a good portrayal, but what have you seen? And, and what would you say to people who really don't know much about it, but are getting their information from television and movies? Yeah. I, I think the thing to keep in mind from TV and movies is you have to compress, you know, something that may happen over hours, days, weeks, or even months. You have to compress it in like, you know, a, a 45 minute TV show or a two hour movie. And so, you know, things that might be differences that might be like one week 
versus another week is all of a sudden compressed. It's like, you know, five minutes later, something changes and you're like, what? You know, and the show is correct that both of these different aspects of the person's behavior or personality will be occurring. They just won't be shifting, you know, in five minutes, they maybe will be shifting over a very long five hours. You know, I mean, you know, so, you know, I mean, uh, people uh, are often uh, fairly lucid in the morning. They've just had a full night's rest. They're feeling energetic, like, like most of us are not, not everyone, but most of us are feeling pretty good in the morning. And then as the evening uh, gets closer and closer, um, most people aren't quite as sharp and quite as alert. And this is even more so for people with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia, such that, in fact, we call it sundowning because it's so common that people with dementia just don't perform well, can't think straight, and often have behavioral problems and more confusion uh, in the late afternoon and, uh, and early evening. And so, you know, I, I do think, again, you know, a lot of what's shown on the TV is probably accurate for one part of the day, um, you know, and my patients, you know, sometimes do think clearly. And, you know, uh, one of the sometimes the most upsetting things for families is when the person who has been sort of severely demented for a long time will say, you know, will suddenly look very lucid. They'll look directly into your eyes and they'll say, I'm so sorry, honey. I know this is really hard for you, you know? And it's just like, Oh my God, like, you know, my mother's there. She's, she's still in there, you know? And then, you know, in this case, it could be a few minutes later, she'll be like, and who are you, honey? You know, you know, I mean, so it, it can be very hard and, and very uh, heartbreaking. But um, I guess the bottom line is I, I do. I think the TVs and movies are I think they're they're doing their best with these types of things. And the more that Alzheimer's is sort of entering the public consciousness, I do think the <clears throat> the more they're getting it correct. Oh, that's good. You know, I want to mention that we're not going through everything because I want people to get the book. But in step one, you have understand dementia and there's different aspects. Step two, manage problems. We've talked about some of those. Step three, ask about medication. Step four, build your care team. What we haven't talked about yet is sustain your relationship. And you ask, why is it important to sustain your relationship? Yeah, it's really, I consider it, you know, part of being able to be a good caregiver you want to try to, you know, keep the relationship that you've had with your loved one as much as you can, but also recognize that you may need to do new things with them. So, you know, an example we use in the book is that, you know, maybe you used to play cards with your loved one. And that was something that, you know, was just one of your favorite activities. Well, maybe they can't play cards with you anymore in the same way, you know, they used to do. But maybe you can sit together and you can play solitaire and they can be with you and hold your hand and and maybe point to the cards or you can ask them to move, you know, the cards around and you can do something like that. Uh, Maybe you used to really enjoy going out to the movies and, you know, having sort of a sort of a date night, you know, with your with your spouse. And, you know, maybe you can't do that anymore, but maybe you can still have a nice meal at home and you can sit on the couch and you can watch an old movie, one of their favorite movies. And when you're watching one of their favorite movies that they've known for years and years, they're going to still remember what's going on or they'll even if they don't know what's going on. They'll just enjoy seeing the faces of the actors, you know, that they've known, like, you know, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn or, or uh, Cary Grant or, or something like that, that they recognize uh, for a long time and, and enjoy it. And, you know, similar things, you know, if you used to enjoy, you know, doing, you know, puzzles with, you know, your parent, you know, maybe they can't really participate, but they can still sit next to you and and enjoy it. So, you know, the key is to try to sort of modify things that they like and, um, you know, they use that they, 
used to like or still like but can't do anymore so you can do it. And the last thing on this topic is to keep in mind that sometimes people are just interested in other things than they they used to be. So I want to mention arts and crafts here because I I think that sometimes people think, "Oh, you know, you know, you're treating my father like he's an infant, you know, you're making him do arts and crafts." It's like, you know what? People like arts and crafts. And oh, I yeah. think there's like some stigma against like somehow arts and crafts are only for kids. You know, I think if adults could do anything they want, a lot of them would do things like, <laughs> like arts and crafts. Yeah, and, and, you know, even if your loved one never did something like that before that you knew of, they probably will, will enjoy it. So keep in mind, you want to modify the things they used to like, but also try some things that many people enjoy uh, when they develop dementia, like arts and crafts. Now, if my understanding is correct, when people have dementia, they're able to remember things maybe that happened in their childhood. And let's say you have somebody you're close with and they have dementia and they keep telling you the same story. I would think it would be just nice to just listen and not be like, you already told me that. Just let them enjoy because it seems like they'd be having a moment where they're, and especially if it's a happy memory. What, what do you think about that? Am I on the right track? Absolutely. You are totally on the right track. Right? The first thing is, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, it, it, like it does not help to correct them, to say, you know, you told me that already. All that's going to do is make them feel bad and cause them to be withdrawn. And one of the nice things is, believe it or not, even if they're telling you the same story they've told you for a million years, you can actually sometimes pull out additional detail. You know, let's say they're telling you about, you know, this, this story when, you know, uh, you know, they and their friend Tom, you know, went down to the river and did fishing with their bare feet or whatever it was. You know, you could say, yeah, you know, tell me more about Tom. You know, how old was Tom at that time? What did he look like? You know, and all of a sudden you'll get new details and it'll become a new story that you didn't know about before. And I'll tell you something else. Sometimes everything that you're hearing is true. And sometimes it's actually not true. <laughs> but it'll be interesting and entertaining uh, uh, either way. And if you really don't want to listen to that story for the hundredth time, then use use the redirection technique and get them talking about something else. You say, oh. Well, you know, that's really interesting, Dad. But let me tell you actually what happened to me at work today, because this is really fascinating, too. And, and you know, that will work fine or get them looking at an old picture album or, you know, do other things if you can't stand to listen to the story for the hundredth time. The last thing I wanted to talk about was step six, plan for the future. And you have how to plan for the progression of dementia and how to plan for the end and beyond. And again, just to touch on it a little bit, because I really want people to get the book. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is, uh, I think, difficult for anyone in our society to talk about sort of the end of one's life. But um, it is so important. And it's particularly important because, you know, all of us as, you know, as family members, as friends, um, you know, we want to do what our loved ones want us to do. And the only way we're going to know the answers to those questions is to ask them. And if we wait until they're quite demented, it's really going to be too late to take into account uh, a lot of their their wishes. So I actually recommend, you know, it's good for people like before they're demented, even if there's no dementia in the horizon, like have this conversation with your loved one. And then it becomes non-threatening, right? It's not a conversation like, I think you're demented, so we have to cover all these issues. It's just like, you know, you're getting older. It could happen. Let's just talk about these things. Right. You know, that would be what I think is the best time to talk about these sorts of issues is before it comes up. But when it does come up, say, you know, look, Dad, and I, I will be very honest, I, I recently have had this conversation with some relatives in my own uh, family. And, um, you know, I I think you just have to say, you know, know, look, 
you know, uh, I can see you're having some trouble uh, with your memory, you know, and let's go ahead and talk about these issues now so that I know exactly, you know, how you want things to go. I know if you can't care for yourself, what you would want uh, to happen. You know, when it comes time, like it happens to everyone that, you know, you're going to be reaching the end of your life. What do you want that uh, to look like? You know, what can I do to help, you know, bring that about? I, I do think in our society, there's a little, you know, there's a stigma about talking about death and end of life and, and things like that. And so sometimes the initial conversation is difficult, but, um, you know, once you sort of get past that, you can go into sort of a planning mode, you know, just like you're going to plan anything else in your life, just like you're going to plan a, a party, you're going to plan a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you got to just plan some stuff. And usually once you actually get into the planning part, you're sort of beyond the, the, the stigma part and it. It tends to go, it tends to go just, uh, just fine. Uh, another way to approach it is uh, for uh, all of us uh, to, do some thinking and planning ourselves. You know, you can sort of say to your, you know, your parent or your spouse or whoever it is, you know, I've been, you know, thinking about, you know, these issues uh, myself and I just spent a couple minutes and I jotted down, you know, this is how I would like the end of my life to look like. And this is who I would like around me. And I know it may not happen like that, but this is what I would like. And for my funeral, these are the different things I would like. And, you know, again, we, we did go through this with uh, uh, some of the characters in our book. So, you know, to give uh, family members sort of an example of, uh, of what this would be uh, like and, and how the conversations could go. Well, this has been such a great conversation, Dr. Budson. Is there anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, you know, I'm just really pleased that uh, people like yourself are interested in these topics because, you know, it, 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 we have so many people in this country and around the world with uh, Alzheimer's disease, with different types of uh, dementias, and those numbers are growing and growing and growing as People are living longer, healthier uh, lives. So uh, I'm just very appreciative to you uh, for your time and your interest. Well, it's a wonderful book. Again, Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, A Guide for Families. Andrew E. Budson, MD, Maureen K. O'Connor, PSYD. I want to thank you so much for coming on Talk Healthy today, Dr. Budson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, if you want some behind the scenes on Talk Healthy Today or a chance monthly to win my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, which is a memoir, cookbook, healthy lifestyle guide, it's the title is just a play on words, please go to www.lisadavismph.com. Sign up for my newsletter. And once a month, you'll be getting some great information as well as being entered into a contest to win my book. So again, go to www.lisadavismph.com. Get more on Talk Healthy Today and keep coming back. There's always great information. Thank you.